This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is October, The Story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville, which is now out in paperback. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution, China Mieville tells the extraordinary story of this pivotal moment in history. In February of 1917, Russia was a backwards autocratic monarchy, mired in an unpopular war. By October, after not one but two revolutions, it had become the world's first worker state, straining to be at the vanguard of global revolution. How did this unimaginable transformation take place? In a panoramic sweep, stretching from St. Petersburg and Moscow to the remotest villages of a sprawling empire, Mieville uncovers the catastrophes, intrigues, and inspirations of 1917 in all their passion, drama, and strangeness. Intervening in long-standing historical debates, but told with the reader new to the topic especially in mind, here is a breathtaking story of humanity at its greatest and most desperate, of a turning point for civilization that still resonates loudly today. October, the story of the Russian Revolution, by China Mieville, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Well, I had to re-record this introduction yesterday because Trump finally responded to the humanitarian crisis he created on the border by separating migrant children from their parents. His big solution? To resurrect Obama's 2014 illegal and somewhat less cruel approach of detaining families together. Which, of course, is no solution at all. I wrote a lengthy essay published at Jacobin's website on Wednesday, picking apart this horrible but rather important irony that pervades the mainstream debate over child separation. Most every horrific measure taken by Trump has a policy precedent in similar, if less breathtakingly inhumane, actions taken by his establishment predecessors. These are predecessors who, alongside the nativist right and their mouthpieces on Fox News and talk radio, helped move the conservative Overton window on immigration so far to the right that by November 2016, it perfectly framed Donald Trump. I want to emphasize that my point in repeatedly excavating this ugly history of bipartisan establishment-embedded xenophobia, the hundreds of miles of border fence, the thousands of dead in the desert, a border patrol that has nearly quintupled in size since the beginning of the Clinton administration, a system of mass incarceration locked into a massive deportation pipeline. I don't do this just to own the libs. It's because we truly will not be able to discern concrete solutions that can put an end to this horror if we do not understand the deep structure, in terms of both policy and politics, that has made Trump's xenophobic presidency possible. We must repeal the laws that criminalize illegal entry and reentry so that migrants cannot be criminally prosecuted under federal law and thus separated from their children simply for stepping into the United States between an official port of entry. We must ensure that there is a clear right to asylum for people fleeing non-state violence, including gangs and domestic partners, contrary to Attorney General Jeff Sessions' recent decision. 
These aren't as sexy as calls to abolish ICE, something that I do firmly agree that we must do. The demand to abolish ICE no doubt expands the horizon of what a world without borders for humans might be. But it should not get in the way of us making other concrete policy proposals that would still mark an extraordinarily radical break with an intolerable status quo. While it might be damning and disappointing that the same degree of liberal outrage never met Obama's mass deportations and jailing of families, the liberal outrage is still a very good thing. Even if it muddies the historical record of the misdeeds of people who are not Donald Trump. And that's because Trump has hastened a welcome polarization over immigration that has been underway since the Bush administration. Liberals, who once shared conservatives' antipathy towards undocumented immigrants, have become increasingly sympathetic and solidaristic as immigration becomes a partisan issue. Polarization and partisanship around immigration is good because the old consensus was horrific. The current moment, then, is full of incredible dangers, but also possibilities to move towards a radical transformation toward human and migrant liberation. Anyhow, I'll link to my Jackman essay in the show notes. My guest today is Vox immigration reporter Dara Lind, one very bright spot in an often disappointing landscape of mainstream immigration journalism. Unlike many reporters on the beat, she actually understands what's going on in all of its historical, political, and legal nuance. Again, we recorded this before Trump signed his executive order. But his executive order is illegal, and a judge could find that it is just that quite soon, since courts struck down a very similar approach when Obama tried it in 2014. As of Thursday, it's still entirely unclear what's happening to these children and to their parents who are being charged with crimes in federal court simply for migrating without authorization. Before we get rolling, we have a stellar weekly newsletter full of information from friends of the show and guests on readings and films and whatever in terms of ways that you can learn more about the subjects discussed on this podcast. It's available to our supporters at patreon.com slash the dig. So please support this podcast at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay. I'm off to get married this weekend, our vehement disapproval of the state's involvement in marriage notwithstanding. And here's my interview with Dara Lind, the immigration reporter at Vox.com. Dara Lind, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you for having me back. I am glad that I didn't, you know, torch the... uh bridges between our peoples last time <laughs> no this is the, the the one this is the red phone line of communication open between jacobin and vox so we have to maintain it for the sake of popular front unity excellent i've always wanted to be part of the popular front <laughs> i know i know um i'm having you on of course to talk about what i'm always dming you about which is that from my perspective the mainstream media coverage and debate over Trump separating immigrant children from their parents at the border is often very confused. And what I want you to explain to start out is, one, what is happening right now? And two, in terms of both official policy and how that policy is being implemented, how that differs from what we saw under Obama and Bush. Let's take this one at a time. 
as far as what's happening right now, the Trump administration via the Department of Justice, run by Jeff Sessions, is prosecuting a relatively high rate of people who come through between ports of entry for the misdemeanor crime of illegal entry into the United States. They're not actually to 100% yet, even though they call it a zero tolerance policy. We don't know exactly how many people are being prosecuted, but it was at 10%. We don't have May data yet. We don't have May data yet. Um, but And May is when they started this you know, in earnest. So April data and previous isn't ideal. But what we do know is that as of a couple of months ago, only about 10% of people who crossed between ports of entry were being prosecuted. And those 10% of cases made up 50% of the entire federal prosecutorial caseload. Um, so we know that what is going on right now is a very big lift, and also that it is probably not the case that we're even at half of all border crossers being prosecuted. But what the Trump administration is doing is they're being pretty clear that quote unquote, categories of people will not be quote unquote, exempt from the consequences of breaking the law. And what they mean by that is that they're not making decisions that consider having a child with you as a deal breaker for you being one of the people they're going to prosecute. As a result of that, because U.S. Marshals detention isn't equipped to deal with, you know, children being with their parents, they are sending the children to Health and Human Services, which is responsible for dealing with people who children who have come across the border without adults. Uh, it, they are children who are separated from their parents or redesignated unaccompanied minors, which is the term for children who come across the border without an adult guardian, and they are kept in temporary detention uh, or temporary shelters that you know in theory are the prelude to either placing them with a relative or finding a longer-term solution for them. What HHS is saying is that when they know that the child has been separated from their parent and the parent is being detained, they're going to keep the child near the parent so that they can be, you know, reunited as soon as possible once that's feasible. Uh, parents are being, you know, prosecuted in kind of the mass trials that we're very, that you and I are very familiar with that have been going on on the border for, you know, a decade. And once they are sentenced to time served, which is usually what they get for a first offense, returned to ICE custody where they are put through deportation proceedings. In theory, that's where ICE could reunite them or, you know, release the parent. They're not doing that. They appear to be pretty, they're, they appear to be pretty gung-ho about de detaining as many parents as possible. Uh, so we do not know how many families have actually been reunited. We also don't know how many parents have been deported without their children, which is definitely a risk that comes up when we're saying that we don't know how many people have been reunited. Uh, or for that matter, how many, you know, if there are cases in which children have been deported without their parents. And so to clarify, what's really new here is not prosecuting immigrants for illegal entry and reentry. Those numbers surged. Um, at least higher than anything we have on record from Trump, higher under the Obama administration. We'll see when the main numbers come out. Maybe he'll beat Obama's record. But what the Trump administration— Right. I mean, it would is, be kind of hilarious if they announced zero tolerance and couldn't get up to uh, a— Like 7,000-something. Yeah. Although, I mean, the the other thing to mention here is that we're kind of sampling on the dependent variable because— uh, the number of people you can prosecute is in part a function of the number of people coming over. And so the fact that the Trump administration doesn't have the kind of apprehension numbers that certainly like the Bush administration had pre-recession uh, and that they're kind of 
comparable to apprehension numbers of the last several years of the Obama administration, you know, that does put a ceiling on it. And yeah, what we would really need is data comparing the number of apprehensions to the number of prosecutions to get a month by month. Once we have, yeah. (laughs) So what is really new here is the the prosecution of asylum seekers crossing between official ports of entry. That is something that's new and horrific. Yeah, I mean, of asylum seekers and of uh, parents with children, both of those appeared to be, you know, considered mitigating factors, at least in some circumstances. Um, The Obama administration, there were kind of accusations that they were prosecuting asylum seekers rather than just referring them to start the asylum process because like because you can apply for asylum and you have a legal right to do that regardless of how you enter the country even though it doesn't change the fact that if you enter the country between ports of entry in the eyes of the government you've committed a misdemeanor but because you can go through that process legally if you end up legally getting asylum at the end of all this the fact that they've bothered to convict you of illegal reentry seems kind of like a waste of resources so you know logically the what the Obama administration was generally doing is saying we'll just refer you back to start the asylum process uh, there were kind of reports that that wasn't happening under the first year of Trump but it wasn't as clearly a policy decision as it became under zero tolerance and because of the kind of increase in volume and decrease in willingness to use discretion in favor of families or in favor of asylum seekers, we have large-scale family separation happening in a way we have not had before. Just to emphasize, obviously what's going on right now is is horrific, but we don't yet have the data not to know how horrific it is. We have the data to know how horrific what's going on now is. CPB told me that uh, a total of 1,995 children have been separated from 1,940 adult guardians who were prosecuted for illegally entering the country um, between April 19th and May 31st. Is there newer data? We do have newer data. This uh, is from yesterday. Yes. Yeah, they, they, just, they just released uh, 2,342 children between May 5th and June 9th which is a higher rate because it, do, because it doesn't include the kind of couple weeks in April before the zero tolerance policy was really locked into place. 65 kids a day. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes in revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And Socialism 2018 will feature leaders of the teachers' strikes that have swept through the so-called red states this spring. Teachers from West Virginia to Puerto Rico to Arizona will speak on two panels in Friday night's main plenary. 
Don't miss this opportunity to learn about the power of organized workers from rank-and-file leaders across the country. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Worker, and by Jacobin. And it will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current teachers' rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great place to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. So we know we know the scope of the the current policy of separating children from their parents and guardians, but what we don't still know, as far as I know, is how that compares to child separation numbers prior to this. CPB said they had no data prior to this window that they were giving me. Yes. Uh, strong cosign. I, you know, we don't have a sense of this. However, it's important to note that the pro bono lawyers who are at the border, uh, the advocates who are dealing with asylum seekers, you know, crossing from Mexico into Texas, the lawyers who are at family detention centers at Burks in Pennsylvania and Dilly and Carnes in Texas, they've been dealing with the trend of families seeking asylum for the last several years. And so, you know, there are people who have kind of eyes on the ground. And they report that it's, that it's significantly up. Yeah, yeah. They've been raising the alarm about this, about kind of the new practices of A, prosecution and B, separation in the recent weeks. There's also kind of this other angle going on here, which we don't understand the role of just yet, which is that some people who present themselves at ports of entry, which is theoretically entirely legal, you do not commit the misdemeanor of illegal entry if you come up to a port of entry and say, I am you know, seeking asylum in the United States. Some families appear to be getting separated when they present themselves there. The Trump administration says that they only separate families at ports of entry if there is concern for the safety of the child or if there's not enough evidence that the, the adult is actually related to the child. We don't know how they're making that assessment. We don't know if they are making that assessment you know, maybe a little more frequently with slightly lower standards than they would have uh, in past months. The ACLU's lawsuit against uh, ICE keeping adults and children separately in detention, the lead plaintiff in that is a woman who entered at a port of entry and was separated from her child uh, and was not reunited for several months. And I've actually also heard that because adults who are separated from children at ports of entry are placed in mandatory immigration detention. They have no opportunity to get bond from an immigration judge. So they don't even have the opportunity to be reunited with their children that someone who crosses between a port of entry does who does get bond. So there are really complicated questions on one hand about the incentives that the Trump administration is creating to enter legally versus it between ports of entry. And on the other hand of whether there is a significant problem of families being separated at ports of entry or not. And that would be a big and disturbing change. Um, and I want to quadruple underline that I am in no way attempting to minimize the, the, the horrors of the policies that Trump is putting in place right now, but just to emphasize that we don't quite yet know how much we can minimize prior uh, policies, the effects of prior policies put in place by, by his predecessors. And one that I, that I want to talk about with you is what Obama did in terms of in detaining asylum-seeking families 
as a family unit, but in jails, basically, in 2014 with the big Central American migrant and asylee surge that was taking place at the time. I think this is especially relevant to talk about because as they're, as Congress kind of decides they're going to try to come up with, you know, something to do about this, uh, it becomes increasingly clear that a lot of the quote unquote solutions for this actually look a lot like what the Obama administration did in 2014, which is to keep families together, but to keep them in immigration detention and to detain them as a matter of policy for as long as it took for their asylum cases to be kind of accepted or denied and to make that process go as quickly as possible, which makes it much harder to prove an asylum claim. So, you know, I was I was actually just looking back today on some conversations that I had with lawyers in the temporary facility that they opened up in Artesia in New Mexico for families and Pro bono lawyers were just having a ton of trouble even getting into the facility. There was one lawyer for every 20, every 120 detainees. They often weren't even getting to talk to people until they had already passed the initial screening interview, which is to say people who failed the initial screening interview didn't really have a chance to get legal representation. They'd already and, been deported. Right, exactly. And, you know, the one lawyer said that it takes about 50 hours to work a for a lawyer to put together a single asylum case. Um, that's not the, you know, that was not an amount of time that they were being given for the most part. They were just on an extremely tight deadline to move through this process that typically takes something on the order of months or years. So there were just very big concerns, you know, at the time raised about due process, but also about the conditions that children were being kept in. Because while a lot of people then as now were paying attention to the conditions in which children on their own were being kept, in important difference that I think has gotten lost in a lot of the kind of comparison of pictures. In 2014, it really was just kids who were coming uh, without adult accompaniment. In 2018, it's kids who are coming without adults and also kids who have been separated from their parents. But like most of the attention has been placed has been paid to the conditions those kids are being kept in alone, there are also big questions about the conditions that kids are being kept in, period, even when they're being kept with family members. And so that Obama administration initiative kind of got shut down when a federal judge, using the court agreement from the 1990s that the Trump administration has complained about is like- Flores. Yep, the Flores settlement, uh, decided, told the Obama administration that A- it needed to stop detaining families as a deterrent message to other people. B, it couldn't keep families in detention for more than 20 days. Uh, that is not something that is always followed in the present day, but that's the source of the Trump administration's complaint now that they can't keep families together because they would have to release them into the community. In other words, what he's saying is if we could do what Obama, what federal judges didn't let Obama get away with, we would be doing just that, which is locking up families in family detention centers, implicitly right. exactly. at least. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it's important to highlight here that, that these are really the people in very similar conditions that Obama was, the Obama administration was incarcerating, that the Trump administration is separating and prosecuting. These are people who are often Central American, often fleeing utterly murderous conditions in Central America that in significant part were 
of course, created by U.S. dirty wars in the 1980s and then deportation policies since the 1990s. Been interesting about the difference between Obama's and Trump's reaction to this in terms of, you know, international relations is that the Obama administration went out of its way to stress that these people couldn't be humanitarian refugees because the the problems they were dealing with in their home countries were primarily economic problems. They were primarily problems of development. You know, they were like arm in arm with the leaders of the Northern Triangle countries saying, we understand that it's our job to help these countries develop so that people don't feel the need to leave for their job anymore. Um, the Trump administration has taken, or like Donald Trump himself has taken the attitude that it is somehow the fault of the governments of these countries and that the right answer is to eliminate foreign aid to them, to disincentivize them from quote unquote sending people, um, which, you know, is certainly not super consistent with prior U.S. policy in the region, but also doesn't exactly, you know, reinforce the idea that these aren't people who are fleeing humanitarian crises if he's saying that this is the government's fault. So, you know, we've we've gone over my my hobby horse, and by the time this is published, my piece on said hobby horse will have been published at at Jacobin, which is the complicity of establishment liberals and Republicans in creating the monstrous deportation and detention machinery that Trump is now taking to new extremes. Um and you've read a you read an advanced draft of, of said article. My last question is really just what what you make of the political potential of the growing outrage against family separation, could it force any sort of change in the short term? Or do you think it's more likely that Trump will simply double down to energize his base ahead of the midterms? I really don't know. I mean, when I wrote my explainer on this, which I guess I initially published uh, at the beginning of last week, I was so, you know, the uh, like second week in June, I guess. I was thinking about it as any other administration would be seeing this as a public relations black eye, because even at that point, there was already enough outrage that it would not be something that an administration would like adopt and be proud of. But I was thinking at the time, you know, this administration doesn't work like other administrations. They're as likely to see it as successful trolling of the libs and double down on it. And President Trump himself is doing that. But other Trump administration officials appear a lot less comfortable with things. They, I mean, it makes sense because they're the ones who are a little more conscious that there are legal ramifications to kind of going too hard on declaring that they're trying to deter people from coming into the United States uh, or saying that they don't want to take asylees. There are, you know, the political ramifications if they understand that this is looking extremely bad and only worse and worse as time goes by. I don't know that that's going to force a an administration reversal, but I wouldn't be willing to bet against it in the same way that I would have been a week ago. The only other way this is going to get fixed is legislatively. Like, I think it's really important to understand that the biggest setbacks the Trump administration has had so far on policy have been through litigation so far. This can't really be fixed through litigation. The ACLU suit wouldn't address the initial separation of people. It would just address ICE's keeping them separate after the parent is re- is sent back after being sentenced. Uh, that's not really going to address the problem we have where it's not clear whether the government is capable of reuniting families that it's separated. So it would really take an act of legislation, of which there are several 
uh, in both chambers proposed by both parties, dealing with the issue by doing everything from mandating that families get kept together indefinitely to mandating that they get kept together indefinitely, or that they get kept together, but also that they be processed within 14 days, uh, which is a bill by Ted Cruz that actually does more than anything to you know, mirror the 2014 Obama policy to just saying you can't separate families and kind of letting them sort it out, which appears to be the democratic approach. But there doesn't right now appear to be enough consensus around what the right answer is for Congress to get over its traditional aversion to doing anything in order to deal with this problem, even though everyone in Congress is willing to agree, at least for the sake of sympathy, that it's bad that families are being separated. It seems like a concrete proposal, if Democratic critics wanted to have one, a actually substantive one, would be to, let's say, repeal the federal statute on illegal entry and reentry or something like that. Yes, I, I think that the right I, that's that's something that I've been surprised hasn't been on the table. I mean, not not that I'm surprised it's not on the table among Democratic members of Congress, but I'm surprised that there haven't been more calls for it. I don't even think you would need to go that far. You could just codify in law what the UN insists is the correct interpretation of the Refugee Convention, which is that you cannot penalize criminally people who are seeking asylum, uh, even if they've crossed irregularly. You could codify asylum law to go in the opposite direction of what Jeff Sessions is trying to do and to make it clear that victims of non-state actors, of you know, non-state violent actors, if they themselves are victims i.e. gangs and abusive men. Exactly, exactly. If if the situation in their home countries is so bad that there is absolutely no guarantee of protection from the government, that they are entitled to asylum, which I think would be, you know, I, I'm, I don't know how many members of the American public would be on board with that, but I think that, you know, if we're kind of reasoning backward from the moral outrage of, oh, it's bad to treat these families like criminals, then we have to ask, okay, is our system equipped to deal with them as humanitarian refugees? And if not, we need to fix the laws around that. Well, Darlene, thank you so very much. Thank you. Dara Lind is the immigration reporter at Vox.com. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that xenophobia is the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, we would appreciate a glowing review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is very much appreciated. And last, but by no means least, do find us at patreon.com slash the dig. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing rolling. Even a few bucks is a big help. 